This episode of The Nurse Keith Show is sponsored by Tufts Medical Center. Hello, experienced OR nurses. Tufts Medical Center is offering a $10,000 sign-on bonus for your expertise. Tufts OR is a fast-paced, high-acuity, level-one trauma center that performs the full scope of adult and pediatric surgical specialties. Join the world-class OR team at Tufts to enjoy growth and development in your professional practice while being rewarded for your experience. Visit TuftsNurses.com to learn more. That's TuftsNurses.com to learn more. And I thank Tufts Medical Center for their generous support of The Nurse Keith Show. What can we learn from the life and career of an accomplished emergency physician about structural racism, justice, personal trauma and healing, and the intrinsic vulnerabilities of our healthcare system? Let's take a deep dive with physician author Michelle Harper right here on episode 335 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is always about you, your personal and professional development, your career, and the healthcare system as a whole. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, medicine, nursing, entrepreneurship, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride, and I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being a part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. And here's a very, very, very special 2021 request. If you find value in this podcast, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith. Creating more than 350 episodes incurs a lot of costs. And in 2021, I'm asking 100 regular listeners to pledge $2 a month for a year. That's less than buying me a cup of coffee a month. And I won't include any caffeine or sugar or empty calories in the show. So you can always pledge more and get some awesome stuff in return. But $2 would be amazing. So head over to PAT reon.com forward slash nurse Keith to sign up and show your support for the show. The show notes for this episode, where you'll learn all about the amazing and inimitable Michelle Harper will be at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 335. And Michelle, it is such an honor to have you here. And your book, The Beauty and Breaking is one of the most fantastic medical memoirs that I have ever read and also one of the best memoirs I have ever read. So having you here is like, I have butterflies because you're just, you're such an incredible writer. And I want to ask you, my first question is, oh, okay. What is an example of firsthand experience you've had of being a black female physician in this healthcare system we have here in the United States that really illustrates what you've been through and what you've overcome through these years of being a physician. Well, and first, thank you. It is an honor for me to be here um, with you and all your listeners today. And to that question, there's so many layers to that experience. Uh, it's mm-hmm. It's, it's complicated. I mean, there is the reward of being there for my patients. I mean, I, w- I will preface this by saying that I typically and, and currently work in an inner city environment that is predominantly black and brown, large immigrant community, um, lower income community. And 
So because I'm also a Black female physician, which, you know, depending on the sources, it's either um, I'm one of two and a half percent or three percent of the Black female physicians. I'm often, despite working in this community that is predominantly Black and Brown, I'm often the only Black ER physician. And to be there um, for my patients who are so appreciative of that. And, you know, during this time of the pandemic and COVID, we talk about trusted messengers um, and having guidance of people where you feel a type of kinship. It's, it's very special to me. You know, um, recently I had a, a patient, a young black woman who came in and she said, she was concerned. She's, she was very young, um, in her 20s, maybe 30. She was concerned about chest pain and breast pain. And she couldn't reach her doctor. She couldn't get an appointment. Um, she had a family history of breast cancer also. So she didn't know if it was a heart or cancer. She had nowhere else to go. And I explained to her that you know we could address the chest pain. But, but first, a couple of words about the breast complaint and how we don't order mammograms. It'll be very important for her to follow up with her doctor for a mammogram to specifically look for cancer, at which point she cut me off. She was besides herself. And she said, you know, this is, this is how black women die. Nobody will take care of them. And I just paused and I was heartbroken because she seemed frantic. She seemed like she was ready to give up. She seemed to be expecting me to tell her I would do nothing for her. And then I I just paused after she expressed herself. And I said, I, I know I can't in the ER address the cancer concern directly, but we can do the other tests for your heart. I do want to do an EKG and blood work and an x-ray to make sure you're okay, okay enough to leave the emergency department and then get your follow-up care. She was so relieved because she didn't expect that I was going to do an evaluation. She just felt that I was going to discharge her and tell her to go figure it out when she couldn't even reach her doctor. And so it's experiences like that where I can be there to be of service, where I can also in acknowledging the frustration and also saying that, and I told her, I do understand her concerns and it's true because in healthcare, we have to do better. Um, And Mm -hmm. seeing her response to that, feeling heard, feeling understood, and ultimately at the end of the encounter, her time in the ER, feeling cared for. Um, So for me, that's priceless. That's that's what I'm there to do. I feel that is, I yes, I, I happen to be a black woman, I feel that is what we are mm-hmm. all there to do for our patients, regardless of the creed, color, age, sexual orientation. It doesn't matter. That's what we should offer our patients. And unfortunately, there is a scarcity of that. Um, but, I, but I feel it's you know, people like us and others and having these conversations and advancing this work that will change this for the, for the better. Wow, that's that's a great story. It's very illustrative of your experience and it parallels stories that you tell in your book too. And there's ooh, there's a story you tell in your book how you were the ER doc and you had an intern or resident with you, a white intern named Lauren, I think. And you heard that 
uh, someone had been arrested and two officers had brought him in to be examined because um, there was this alleged crime yeah. of swallowing drugs, mm-hmm. right? And so you, you, you describe in the book stealing yourself before you go out to talk to them mm-hmm. because you're hoping it's not two white police officers and a black arrestee, yeah. but you know in your heart that that's probably going to be the case and that is the case. And you confront this situation head on and you have to really exert your power and agency, even though some of your colleagues are also questioning your mm-hmm. judgment, especially the medical intern resident is questioning your judgment. That was a shocking story to me. And was it shocking to you or were you like, oh, this is just... (laughs) Unfortunately, it was not (laughs) shocking. And it was multiple white officers um, with one black man who was under arrest for allegedly swallowing drugs. Um, Mm -hmm. And in that instance, he was clinically, I mean, I know I, I, I believe the audience on this podcast are largely clinical groups, so I can, I can. Yes, mostly. Almost yes, so, all. Yep. so they'll understand when I say that the patient was competent and sober and the patient had medical capacity. The patient did not want to be evaluated. And the police said, no, 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 we're, we're bringing him in. So you will get the drugs out. This is what will happen. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't get, have decision-making capacity. Um, my mm-hmm. trainee who I called Lauren, of course I changed all the names <laughs> of course. and, yeah. and other staff, um, felt that I shouldn't just discharge the patient in accordance with his wishes. Of course, I let everybody know that he has rights. He is allowed to sign himself mm-hmm. out. Um, so I finished the history and the exam and discharge and then began to discharge him. And Lauren, who is again my my trainee, the resident there, um, yeah. invoked what she felt would be a higher authority called the Hospital Legal and Ethics Department to override my order. She did not tell me she was doing this. I found out when the um, when they called out. It was somebody waiting to hear from Hospital Legal Ethics. They informed her that actually I am correct, and that is the law. Um, so I discharged him. It. it was so upsetting to me um, that this man, that his autonomy, that his personal sovereignty was felt to be so provisional. And it goes against everything we are trained. I mean, first of all, there's a moral and ethical breach um, if we had assaulted him to do what the police were saying. which it would be, it would be a form yes, of assault. It would be, we would be, yeah. we'd, and, and yeah. that would be a moral and ethical breach, professional as well, and a crime for us to do that. <laughs> yes. So it's important yes. for me to in, inform everyone of that and do right by the patient um, and have this discussion as well because his autonomy was felt to be provisional. And my knowledge, um, my academic professional acumen also was felt to be that way. Was I surprised? Um, Sadly, I wasn't uh, because this happens Mm -hmm. all the time. We often hear the term Mm -hmm. use microaggressions. I hate that term because there's nothing micro about it. And the macro macro. and the consequences of it are quite gross. So 
Yeah. And I'm sorry it wasn't surprising. Wow. And, but I'm not surprised that right. it wasn't because you're, you're a black woman. You said one of 2% of all yeah. physicians in the United States. And who knows what micro <laughs> percentage right. of ER doctors. And, you know, in the book, you talk about um, Dr. J. Marion Sims, who, operated on enslaved women, mm-hmm. you know, did mm-hmm. pelvic and GYN um, surgeries in order to practice yeah. before he operated on white women. And he didn't use anesthesia on the enslaved mm-hmm. black women, of course. And you also mention the risk factors for mobility and mortality in terms of racism and sexism. And it sounds like this is something you encounter and have encountered mm-hmm. all the time, isn't it? Yeah, you know, um, we speak about historical racism and the lack of trust in communities of color, for example, not only community of colors, LGBTQT communities, Mm -hmm. um, the list goes on. But when it comes to anti-Black racism, the history of it, well, there's a lack of trust because it's historical and also present day. Um, and it's mm-hmm. so important, I feel, for us to understand the history and and look critically and acknowledge honestly when it happens on a daily basis. Another example, um, recently mm-hmm. when I was taking care of, of another woman, I mean, I, I say young and it, Anybody younger than me is now young. <laughs> every every year yes, that I, I every year that, that age feeling. goes up. Um, I know. And she was in her early mid thirties and um, short of breath. She came in short of breath. Mm-hmm. Now, when I examined her, her physical exam was normal, even her vital signs. But I believed her when she said she was short of breath. Didn't know what was going on. She didn't have any history of lung disease or heart disease. So we did testing, even screening for blood clots. Everything was coming back normal. So now we were done. Um, and I was trying to piece out what I would do because she keeps saying that she's having a difficult time breathing. She walked to the restroom before I was going to see her for my final evaluation. And when she came back, her nurse, who was very astute, and I was appreciative of this observation, um, said, you know, mm. you look short of breath now. Let's check your pulse ox. And it was dangerously low. It was in the 80s. Now, when she rested, it Ooh. did improve and it was back to normal. But that's a problem. So I thought, okay, now I have something objective. And I wanted to admit her to the hospital just because something felt wrong. And now, mm-hmm. now I had the backup. Anybody who's an ER doctor or, or works in the ER, you know, you need proof. Before you talk to yeah. the admitting doctor. Dyspnea on exertion. Exactly. Okay. I got DOE. Yeah. So when I called, the admitting doctor had already logged into our system and seen all the information. I, I gave him the information um, again anyway. And he said, yeah, but now her, her oxygen's normal. You need to discharge her. And I said, I mm-hmm. most certainly will not because I, I, I have data that there's a problem. Every time she walks, even just the few feet to the restroom. Yeah, but you did all the tests and they're normal. She has to go. Um, Mm. Long story short, I told him if he didn't admit her, then that's fine. I'm not going to fight over it. I'm not going to argue with him. 
I will find a different doctor to admit her because I'm not sending her home. She was admitted Good to the you. hospital. Um, and I thought back that this is, this is, this is not years ago. This happened. This is in, in this is contemporary and never in my life. And I'm an ER doctor who's worked in multiple institutions, thousands of patients. Never once have I had a patient with similar complaint and presentation, similar data, who a doctor has said to me, if the patient was white or male, just send them home. Never once. I've never had that interaction. And so this is what I mean, just having open eyes to, to our encounters and then being willing to be courageous enough to advocate for our patients in those instances. And hopefully, you know, I don't know with that doctor, hopefully he reflected, hopefully it changed his behavior as well. I know one thing, if I hadn't taken the stance I had, he wouldn't have had the opportunity to reflect on it. It would just be another patient, another miss, another injustice, but hopefully this made a difference. I'm sure it did, especially for her. Oh yeah. Seeing that you cared, that you were really putting energy into bringing her into the system and providing her the care she needed. And you were being an ally. You were acting as an ally. And in your, in your book, I think it's in the first section, you talk about how as an ER doc, you're often serve as a salve, as an antidote. And then you said you also serve as a Karen or a Charon, mm -hmm. um, however you want to pronounce it, Sharon. <laughs> yes. um, and, and he was the they call that a psychopomp who ferried the souls of the dead across the river sticks into Hades. Mm -hmm. So you, you deal with people with acute complaints and you also tell stories of people who are dying or, mm -hmm. or die under your care. Mm -hmm. So you, you have to serve many purposes as an ER doc, don't you? Mm -hmm. And what does that mean to you having to serve so many different roles in your role as an ER physician? For me, it makes sense. It's a, it's a more holistic approach. And we, we often don't think of a holistic or integrative approach in feels like emergency medicine, which is right. acute care, you know, treat them and street them. We always say mm -hmm. it tends to be different than that in practice though. And, and I feel, especially when we're practicing well, because we are, a safety net and not just for people who don't have insurance, but, but, but often, and, and as I mentioned in the book, people who do, because it, it's hard, even when you have coverage to access your doctor or if anything goes wrong and you call your doctor, they say often go to the ER. So we do, yes, acute care. We often do primary care. We do social services. We do mental health consultations. Um, a lot of that. A lot of it. So yes. we have many hats and, and often it's not just taking care of the person with a heart, heart attack or the person who's been shot, but the person who is just scared. They don't know what's happening with their body or they come in with anxiety because they... Well, lost their job during the pandemic and are now mm -hmm. facing being homeless and they can't get into a shelter 
like a middle-aged woman I saw because the shelters have more restrictions post COVID. And so of course they're panicked and having anxiety and panic attacks and, and heart racing and shortness of breath, and they don't know what to do. So, so it's all of those areas that we address to the best of our ability um, with the, with the resources we have. Right. And you tell some incredible stories. You tell the story of the the man who comes in with his two adult children mm. and you you're I forget his name but you yeah. you're aware that he's dying that he has a very severe illness and he wants to go home and treat himself with herbs and other other interventions and you you meet him where he is yeah. basically right yeah and that must happen a great deal where you have a sense of what you could do but the patient has another idea right mm-hmm. Yeah. And I do think that's part of the caretaking. I mean, mm-hmm. this was a man in his 60s who had um, prostate cancer before. That's right. And yeah. it, decades before, treated with surgery. Um, he did follow up with um, medical management. He, um, it was very important for him to live more naturally, you know, Mm-hmm. as he would say, as some others would say. Um, so was very cautious about what he put in his body when it came to food, when it came to medications. And he had been healthy and, and well and enjoying his life and fit and active, very close with his family for years. And now having this vague, diffuse abdominal pain um, and come to find out on, on imaging, on CAT scans, that the findings were consistent with metastatic cancer, most likely right. prostate cancer. And he was waiting for, he'd been ad- admitted, but waiting to get a bed in the hospital. And we had a long conversation because it was, he had an extended time in the ER. And um, we spoke, he didn't want to be admitted to the hospital. You know, he told me he can't even eat hospital food. He doesn't mm-hmm. know if he's going to, well, he pretty much knew he was not going to do chemotherapy or radiation. He wanted to continue to feel as well as he could for as long as he had left. And, and I understood and felt he was right when he said the hospital was no place for him to be, that he would yeah. enjoy his life outside of the hospital. And yes, he would give me extra time to schedule his follow-up appointments um, with the specialist, but then he wanted to leave. And it made a lot of sense to coordinate his care that way. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's an instance where I think that the listening and the collaboration is important for patients and healing and trusting. And in, in that moment, and there's so many moments like that, when patients really do know their bodies and themselves and their lives. So Mm -hmm. to work with them on that level. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. And you, you can pull rank on them, for instance, and Mm -hmm. you can initiate treatment if you can convince them to do so, but it's often, it's not your place to do that if they, they don't want to. And I really mm-hmm. appreciate in the book how how much you talk about honoring where the patients are and really wanting to just meet them in that place. And 
that's a wonderful thing. And a lot of us don't experience that in healthcare very much. We feel dismissed and in, in a, well, it's called sometimes a post-racial society, but oh. it's not a post-racial society. Right. <laughs> and in the society where, you know, the black woman is sent home time and time mm. again, and you know that if it was a white man, it might be a different outcome. So you're, you're swimming against this particular current mm-hmm. and it does take a lot of courage. And I, I imagine it can be very tiring, isn't it? Oh, exhausting. Exhausting mm-hmm. is the word. Um, I do draw, you know, I, I do tell a lot of stories and a lot of them are so difficult and these topics are difficult. Mm-hmm. So I will, uh, I never feel like I ab- abandon the listener by not also having a, a positive point to it. And I will say right. that do, <laughs> doing it. this work and being of service is very rejuvenating to me. Um, I, I feel that self-care is important. I, I will, and I will never say to people that, you know, I, I'm an ER doctor and I work for social justice and social change. And it's easy. It's easy work if you just kind of put mm-hmm. the time in. No, it's it's excruciating work. Mm-hmm. It's also worth it. And it's also not quick. Um, it is a lifetime. And in order for us to have success in these efforts, we have to know that we're in it for the long haul over mm-hmm. generations and it's yes. worth it. And so, so then I think about, okay, so how will this be sustainable for me? And I have to take multiple steps. Um, for example, having boundaries, like we, we had mentioned, for example, ev- even when I'm doing this work in real time, we'd mentioned Lauren, my trainee, who was, um, disrespectful and dangerous. Um, Mm -hmm. And I've been asked in interviews before, well, did you, did you pull her aside and have more of a conversation directly? Like, did you tell her directly about her behavior and her bigotry? And that's a fair question. And I will tell you the truth. I had done enough and this work is exhausting. And I had Mm -hmm. led by example and I also had to get on to the next patient. And I have to tell you, even if there wasn't another patient waiting and there were multiple, I don't know that I would have handled it differently because there comes a point in time, which was much earlier in her life, where she has to take responsibility for herself and she has to do the work to change. And so part of my self-care is recognizing that it is not my job alone to heal and redirect every single person and every institution where I am, I, I, I do a lot of critical work and it comes a point when enough is enough and I have to step back and shore up my energy. And, and then, you know, other there's yoga, which I talk about a lot or yes, <laughs> listening to my, my spiritual guides like Eckhart Tolle and drawing on mm-hmm. ancestral wisdom of you know, James Baldwin, Toni Morrison. So, so many modalities I use to take care of my, myself on this journey. And that sets a great example. And throughout the book, you set that example. And I just wrote a blog post and did a podcast episode very recently about the 
what can feel like the Sisyphean nature of mm. healthcare, mm-hmm. pushing the boulder up and then the next day. And then I also wrote about in that same instance about the quixotic nature where we feel like we're fighting, you know, like Don Quixote, we're fighting maybe monsters that don't even exist, but we know they're there, mm-hmm. but people see us as quixotic. They see us as, you know, waging a battle that we don't need to wage. And in the second half of the show, I'd, I'd love for you to read the intro to mm. the book when we come back. And then I'd like to talk about how you weave your personal narrative and your personal family and mm-hmm. trauma history throughout this book, which is, makes it absolutely riveting and compelling and, and so moving. So does that sound like a good plan for the second half? Sounds perfect. Great. Okay. So hang in there with us and we will be right back with Michelle Harper for the second half of episode 335 of The Nurse Keith Show. So now we're going to take a pause for the cause for just a moment. I have an important message from our generous sponsors at Tufts Medical Center, which I'll add parenthetically, is located in the glorious city of Boston, Massachusetts, where a number of my beloved family members and dear friends, and admittedly a piece of my heart, happily reside. Tufts is a world-class healthcare organization with world-class nurses. Tufts is growing, and they're looking for excellent nurses to be a part of their future. You'll find rewarding nursing opportunities in many advanced care settings, such as critical care, med surge, and OR, where you can practice alongside other expert professional nurses. Not only is Tufts MC one of the nation's most prominent academic medical centers, it's also a place where your voice as a nurse will be heard and appreciated. Isn't it time to bring your expertise to Tufts Medical Center, where you'll be valued for your input and respected for your knowledge? Nurse recruiters are waiting to talk to you about their immediate openings in critical care, med surge, and OR. Visit tuftsnurses.com to get started. That's tuftsnurses.com to take your nursing career to the highest level. And I thank Tufts Medical Center for their generous support of The Nurse Keith Show. Please consider becoming a patron of The Nurse Keith Show, just like other listeners who value the show so much that they're willing to give just a little bit each month to support the work we're doing here. And now in 2021, I am making a special request for 100 regular listeners, that's you, to pledge $2 a month for a year to help support the show and keep things moving along. $2 a month is less than buying me a cup of coffee every month, and you're going to get some great audio awesomeness in return for your generous support. So head over to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash Nurse Keith to show your support for The Nurse Keith Show. And finally, if you know someone who could benefit from career coaching with me, please consider referring them. And if they become a paying client, you receive credit for an hour of coaching with me and there's no expiration date on that credit. So you can keep it in your proverbial back pocket until you need it most. And remember, you can refer as many people as you like and continue to accrue those coaching credits, which I think is an amazing deal. Those are my sincere asks of you. And I want to thank once again, Tufts Medical Center for their generous support. So now let's dig back into 
today's topic. And welcome back to the second half of the episode. Remember, the show notes are located at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 335, where you can read about Michelle Harper, go to a link to her book, and actually purchase a copy of The Beauty and Breaking, which I can't recommend more. Uh, the Beauty and Breaking was a New York Times bestseller. It was a Barnes & Noble monthly pick. Time recommended it as the best new book to read in July of 2020. And it was a New York Times notable book of 2020. And it was among Amazon's 100 best books of 2020. So just a couple superlatives there. And, and Michelle... Can I share something? Please, Michelle, go ahead. This is breaking news. Oh. Last night, I was notified that it made nonfiction paperback New York Times bestseller list Again. All right. So it's another New York Times bestseller. I'm so excited. That's great. <laughs> Congratulations. You heard it here first, folks. Thank you. Michelle you Harper, did. New York Times bestselling author. All right. So that's great. That Thank makes you. me smile. Um, so I would love to have you start this half of the show reading the intro. And it's just a couple pages, three or four pages. And it's so beautiful. And I've just, you can just okay. take it Thank away. You. As I cradled my patient's head in my hands, I looked past the watery wells of his eyes. For a moment, I didn't notice the blood that ran in rivulets across my gloves as it poured from his scalp, or the bits of gray and white brain matter that dotted the sheets, the beeping of the monitors around me, the popping sound of IV catheter tops being flicked off by nurses, the screeching of wheels as equipment was dragged across linoleum floors, the nurses in tech yelling directions at one another, the stifled gasps erupting from the two medical students on their first ER shift, attempting in vain not to be startled. All were drowned out as I stood over this young man and tried to ease his agitation. This is the part of being a doctor that medical school doesn't cover, that case reviews don't prepare you for. This is the part you can't really know until you're in the moment. You are the person responsible for saving the life that slowly slips through your fingers while silently begging for final redemption under the demanding fluorescent lights. I am the doctor whose palms bolster the head of the 20-year-old man with a gunshot wound to his brain. I support the baby as she takes her first breath outside her mother's womb. I hug the wife whose husband is dying from advanced liver disease as she implores the universe to take away his pain. I claim no special powers, nor do I know how to handle death any better than you. What I know is that for 36 hours a week, I reside in the melee that is a hospital emergency room where I'm called upon to be salve, antidote, and sometimes charin. Most of the time, my job is to keep death at bay. When I am successful, I send the patient back out into the world. When I'm not, I am there as life passes away. I'm not so deluded as to think that I alone am capable of making that kind of difference. I'm well aware that the determination of who lives and who dies doesn't happen at my hands alone. There are times when, despite the designs of any patient, family member, friend, or doctor, death will come. Then I am witness. What I can do is be the fairy woman who holds the body as the last breath escapes. The one who, like the night sentinel, calls out the hour and does her best to convey that all is well. Like everyone, I am in this world for only a brief time, and as for many, blessings abound in my life, and they abound amid the struggle, 
Amid my struggle, over the decades, I've learned to cultivate a personal state of stillness. As a child, that stillness grew from a dissociation I stumbled upon that allowed me to better endure life with a father who was a batterer and with a family legacy of victimhood. As a Black woman, I navigate an American landscape that claims to be post-racial when every waking moment reveals the contrary. An American landscape that requires all women to pound tenaciously against the proverbial glass ceiling, which we've since discovered is made of palladium, the kind of glass that would sooner bow than shatter. When I began writing this book, I had started over. My marriage to my college sweetheart had ended. I had moved to a new city to start a new job. Plagued with doubt, I found myself having to reevaluate my life. Living through such changes was difficult. Now I see those junctures when everything I'd counted on came to an abrupt end as a privilege. They gave me the opportunity to be uncertain. And in that uncertainty grew opportunity. From childhood to now, I've been broken many times. I suspect most people have. In practicing the Japanese art of kintsukoroi, one repairs broken pottery by filling in the cracks with gold, silver, or platinum. The choice to highlight these breaks with precious metals not only acknowledges them, but also pays tribute to the vessel that has been torn apart by the mutability of life. The previously broken object is considered more beautiful for its imperfections. In life, too, even greater brilliance can be found after the mending. As an emergency medicine physician, I know how to be still for others. I know how to call down the gods of repose and silence to take measure of their power in the moments when I need it most. This stillness I inhabit as I pause, push, breathe, and grow. The stories I tell here will, I hope, take you into the chaos of emergency medicine and show you where the center is. The center is where we find the sturdy roots of insight that can't be wind-thrown by passing storms. In their grounding, they offer nourishment that can, should we allow it, lead to lives of ever-increasing growth. I had to find this center for myself as I took stock of experiences that were exceedingly painful, yet that ultimately filled me with the promise of a meaningful rebirth, a rebirth that is worth the surviving, worth the healing, worth the repair. Wow, thank you. This is so beautifully read. And that's the introduction to the memoir by Michelle Harper, The Beauty in Breaking. And Michelle, that introduction just sets the stage so well for the entire book because you do share, like you did in the first half, very moving stories and compelling stories of racism and uh, struggle and pain and death and you know everything that you've experienced. But throughout the book, you weave your divorce, your you know your romantic relationships in life, your yoga practice, which is very important to you. And the story of a very abusive childhood where you often felt you needed to figure out how to save your mom from being killed by your father. And Mm -hmm. so you really bring that notion of personal healing into the narrative because that helps inform how you treat your patients. Mm -hmm. So tell, tell us a little bit about this this road to healing, you know, taking personal trauma, societal trauma, weaving them mm-hmm. together and 
finding your way through this narrative to deliver these stories to us. What what's that been like for you? You know, I will say, and I and I loved how you posed that question, and and stated how I wove my personal story between patient stories of of healing and transformation, while also highlighting the societal ails that we face as well. And I did that because aren't they always connected? Mm-hmm. Always. Mm-hmm. It's the same. These the trauma of my childhood um, facing really the misogyny that informed where my father felt it was appropriate to express his rage, which is another name for pain mm-hmm. in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father doing that because he had, um, trauma that he didn't heal in his own background, feeling abandoned by both of his parents and my mother not feeling power to find and assert her voice. And so they were brought together and bonded in trauma Um, and how it is personally these same dynamics clearly as we've seen as we've discussed play out on a larger societal level on a national international stage so in order for me to save myself and break this family legacy of trauma and violence I had to inspect it. I had to figure out a way to heal myself so that I wouldn't repeat those cycles. Mm. And then of course, by understanding those dynamics, well, then I think there's the opportunity for me, it's, it's, a, it's a personal kind of spiritual obligation, but I'll say there's the opportunity to be a support system for others who are looking for their own healing, who want who need allies in that respect. Mm -hmm. And if we do that, if we show up for ourselves, we can then show up for others. We can then, well, change the world. Mm -hmm. Right. And well said. And, you know, writing this book is an offering from you to the world, right? Because it's a bestseller and people can read it and be transformed by it and have it inform their own choices that they make in terms of their own healing. And some of us are more attuned to our growth edges than others. You know, mm-hmm. some of us have, our eyes have been opened more readily, or we've had experiences that have caused us to go to therapy, which I mm-hmm. talk about a lot on the show, or, yeah. or do the practices, whatever it is, like the Japanese practice you talked about in the introduction, which I can't pronounce. Yeah. What is that? Oh, I can't either. I, you know, I do my best. I've even you know, uh, practice and tried Kinsukorai mm-hmm. or k- Kinsuji. Right. And I apologize. I, I try to You're pronounce forgiven. it correctly. And I, you <laughs> I talk know, about forgiveness not... in the book a lot anyway. So there you go. But this, this notion of putting yourself back together and you, you find the places where you need to put the gold or silver or platinum or whatever yeah. it is to, to fill in the cracks and that our imperfections are part of who we are. 
And you really own those in your book. You own the stuff about your intimate relationships too. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. how did you make the choice to write what is essentially a medical memoir and be so, um, be so personally transparent? (laughs) (laughs) So part of that was my doing. I mean, I did, I chose to write the initial chapters about my, ch- my childhood home, about my divorce. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I will say, and I, I give credit, I love my editor. He's so great at the publisher. Um, they wanted me to put more of that in, mm-hmm. more, more somehow. He didn't give me much direction, but he's like, oh, you know, this relationship with Colin you need to tell us more so we feel invested. Mm-hmm. You know, your divorce, this is good, but can you just add to it somehow a little bit more? So rip your heart open, 60, Michelle. Go for it. Right. Feel exactly. over the page. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So 60% of it was my idea. And then the rest, my editor lovingly, kindly, but bluntly dragged out of me. So, and and I will say it was very difficult. It was, I had to figure out how to do it. I mean, I suppose I didn't, but I I did trust him. I also was under contract. Um, So I had to figure out how to do it. And I, I meditated on it. I I had to step away from the writing process. I went on walks when I would write original material, which usually was at midnight while I was burning incense or vanilla scented candles. Then it would come to me what felt true, what felt real. I mean, I often when I delved into the divorce more, even though I felt I had already healed from it, there was more because I, I started crying when I was writing it. The, the part of the relationship ending with Colin, the other significant relationship in my life, that was more recent in time. And when I was asked to put more about it, I wasn't ready to write it. So I had to stop and then come back to it. So it was an interesting process where I had made the decision to be transparent about these aspects of my life because I felt that it could help others. It could take stigma away, you know, and we shouldn't have shame about childhood abuse. Like that's, we don't own that. Mm -hmm. What we then own is our response to it later when we grow up. And so I, I wanted to, I suppose in my discussing it, it would be an example and like validation that permission that it is okay. This isn't your burden to bury, to, to carry. Um, So that's why I did it. And I will say that what I didn't anticipate was the additional gift of further healing that I would experience by excavating those areas more. In public. (laughs) In public. I didn't, you know, I'm going to tell you, I, yeah. because I'm new, I'm new to this field. Uh-huh. So I'm new. My background is, is, is medicine right. and being a doctor. Like I, I was a psych, it comes as a shock to exactly no one probably that I was a psychology major in undergrad. Yeah, you went to Harvard, right? You started yeah. at Harvard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not even literary. Like I, I had this idea for the book and then I said, okay. I'm going to work on my writing as I write the book and then we'll see what happens. Then I'll figure it out. And it didn't dawn on me that people might actually read the book until I was under contract. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, 
Well, I guess a couple people fall. are reading it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Let the chips fall where they may. We'll sort it out. So well, that, it's been interesting. That transparent, <laughs> yeah, that transparency is very inspiring for, for me personally. And I'm very transparent on this show. I've talked about living with depression and post-traumatic mm. stress and chronic pain. And, you know, I talk about being in psychotherapy. People are probably tired of hearing about that. But I had a doctor on the show who wrote a book about being a, a healthcare professional with mental illness. And we talked mm-hmm. openly about that. Like, what does that mean? So our, our choices to be transparent as I'm putting quotes around this public figures, because yeah. once you put something out in the world, you're a public figure. And once you're on the New York Times bestseller list, you're really a public figure. So I'm assuming that that there's been healing for you even after writing and publishing the book because you get to talk about it more and maybe excavate a little more. Is that part of the process for you? I'll be I'll be honest. Yeah. Um the process of writing and rewriting and then once I had the book contract and going through that years long edit with my editor and kind of mentally anticipating what it would mean to speak about these topics with people. All of that's been very healing. Then once the tour started, I I will just say that once the tour started, it's been a different practice Mm -hmm. because it's been busier than I could have imagined. And I, for most of it, have not had time to process anything. So it's been a different kind of learning where I've never been this busy in my life. Hmm. I still work full-time in the ER. So there's the full-time ER, publicity, speaking engagements, um, and constantly juggling and having to remind myself that I need to step back, even if it's just taking a couple breaths Mm -hmm. while I'm doing the dishes. Or when I, it's a treat for me when I have to walk to the store to buy some groceries, like that counts as a break now. Mm -hmm. So, so my practice now is reminding myself that I need to seek and obtain balance. Um, So in that way, I think it's been, it's been transformative in, in a different light and also really asking myself, what are healthy boundaries? Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I can't get back to everyone on social media and I, I, I'm, I'm notoriously terrible at social, social media. And I've decided <laughs> that's a really good thing. I'm just not going to be on it that much. That's cool. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, deciding what will my boundaries be so that this can be sustainable? How will I restructure my life, which I will need to do next year so that this is sustainable because, because, because I'm looking at what my goals are and I resonate more with the title of healer Mm -hmm. than a doctor. So I love seeing patients in the ER. I don't like the bureaucratic part of it. You know, I don't like all the parts that really prevent us from doing the medicine we need to do, but I love seeing patients. And I will do my best to change the system right. when I can. And I think that right now what serves this healing mission um, on a larger scale than the one-on-one in the ER is the writing, 
and the speaking engagements. Mm-hmm. Um, so I need to further that. So it's been it's been yoga off the mat. It's been this amazing spiritual journey. Yoga off the um, mat. I like that. Yes. <laughs> I'm a former yoga teacher, so I get it. Yeah. Oh, I love it. So yoga off the mat. So you're bringing that mindfulness and your practices to like walking to the store and washing the dishes. And I think some nurse out there listening right now who works in the ER, that COVID unit, or well, the COVID units are slowly transforming back to regular ICUs, but still working on the front lines of healthcare in a school, school school-based clinic, whatever it is, he or she may need to just take a few breaths while they wash the dishes or change their baby's diaper in the evening or whatever. So there's a lot they can learn Mm -hmm. from what you're sharing here of, of yoga off the mat. And maybe that'll be another book of yours, but there's, mm-hmm. there's this notion <laughs> in your book, as we wind down here of forgiveness is a really big piece here, you know, in terms of your dad and also the system in which you're working mm-hmm. and society in which you live and how it's done damage to people of color. And we could mm-hmm. go on and on. Right. And then you also talk about um, humanism, what it means, you know, humanism in medicine to really to be an ally, to to really show up for people as yourself and this ability to to really tune into people even in the midst of the the malaise of the ER. So for you moving forward and looking while looking back at all of this, your life and the book and the process and the book tours and the podcasts like mine and all this stuff, what are what are the the greatest lessons you think you're you're taking forward for yourself and that maybe you'll share in a maybe a subsequent book i always say my answer to this question is always the same which i feel like are two of my guiding principles um Mm -hmm. radical honesty just having the courage to be honest about what is happening how i'm feeling my engagement to the process, and then integrity. And I'm using the word integrity um, as a verb because then I feel, then what am I going to do based on this radical honesty? Mm. Then how am I going to behave? What action am I going to take from that place? So I hope um, those are, are prominent takeaways from anything I write and also for me and anything I do. And just like yoga, it is a constant um, practice, a readjustment, um, Mm -hmm. micro adjustments to maintain alignment um, in different circumstances and as as we change and grow as humans. Wow. Thank you so much. That's that's really beautiful. And I'm going to take that in and go back and listen to that a couple times. And it's been such a privilege to have you here. And I wish we had a couple more hours and I can't wait to have you back on when your next New York times bestseller yeah. comes out. <laughs> so get, get cracking on that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this amazingly inspiring episode of the nurse Keith show with Michelle Harper, a Philadelphia physician, author, 
author of the book, The Beauty in Breaking, a memoir. And remember, the show notes will be at nursekeith.com forward slash episode 335. Please consider buying a copy of her book and writing a review for her on Amazon or anywhere else you like as well. And remember, if you need personalized holistic career coaching to elevate your healthcare or nursing career, please get in touch with me at keith at nursekeith.com. Mention the show, you get 10% discount on your first coaching package. Mention Michelle Harper, you get 15% off your first coaching package. And please consider becoming a patron. $2 a month for a year would be super awesome at patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith. The Nurse Keith Show is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com, one of the largest and fastest growing collections of authoritative, high quality podcasts taking on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. And speaking of excellence, The Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. Thank you, Rob. And Mark Cappy Spiesen is our stalwart social media ringmaster. My hat's off to both Mark and Rob for keeping the wheels turning in the right direction. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. And Dr. Michelle Harper, bidding you adieu from Philadelphia, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, my old hometown. Thank you, Michelle. And thanks to everyone. And we will catch you on the flip side. Mm -hmm.